Chapels, and we'll get this straight this time. Chapels are Monday, Wednesday, Friday, 10.15. Don't let me say anything different now from now on. Tuesday, Thursday start at 10.30. All right, just so we've got that all straight across the board. And I'm sorry if we missed you up on that. We're very excited about chapels this year. And we're going to do something a little bit differently than we've done in the past. And that would be to develop themes throughout the year. Rather than having messages that may not tie or add up to any particular one direction, it's our desire that we bring people in front of you under major themes so that you can be burdened by the heart of God and from the scriptures in a particular direction so that it adds up, so that it goes in a particular direction. And presently we're in a theme on the Master Himself, the attributes of God. Yesterday we talked about seeing the Master, seeing Him for who He is, not being guilty of Lowell's syndrome in theology, not projecting our weaknesses upon God, not creating God in our own image, but letting God be who God is. And we found Him to be measureless, not bound by space or time, we found him to be complete. He has no needs. He is the primary source of everything. And we add nothing to God. And we found him to be independent. He does whatever he does whenever he wants to. This morning, I'd like to provoke your thoughts on the personality of God. The personality of God. And I'd like to begin this message by relating to you the true but tragic account of a man by the name of Leonard Holt. Let me read it to you. Leonard Holt was a paragon of respectability. He was a middle-aged, hard-working lab technician who had worked at the same Pennsylvania paper mill for 19 years. Having been a Boy Scout leader, an affectionate father, a member of the local fire brigade, and a regular churchgoer, he was admired as a model in his community. Until that image exploded in a well-planned hour of bloodshed, one brisk October morning, and we have visions of the Night Stalker here. This also is a true story. Holt decided to mount a one-man revolt against the world he inwardly resented. A proficient marksman, he stuffed two pistols into his coat pockets, a 45 automatic and a Smith & Wesson 38 before he drove his station wagon to the mill. Parking quietly, he gripped a gun in each fist, then slowly stalked into the shop. He started shooting with such calculated frenzy that it resembled a scene out of Dirty Harry. He filled several of his workmen with two and three bullets apiece, firing more than 30 shots in all deliberately killing some of the men he had known for over 15 years. Puzzled policemen and friends finally discovered a tenuous chain of logic behind the brief reign of terror. Down deep within the heart of Leonard Holt rumbled intense resentment. The man who had appeared like a monk on the outside was seething with murderous hatred within. Now, when I read that account for the first time, a phrase immediately popped into my mind. All that glitters isn't gold, right? Things aren't always as they appear to be. Leonard Holt 
appeared to be making a better-than-average contribution to his community. Boy Scout leader, affectionate father, churchgoer. And yet the man who appeared like a monk on the outside was seething with hatred on the inside. Something went wrong in the life of Leonard Holt on the inside first. And later, it revealed itself in the way he did the things that he did. He was able to masquerade as a normal person for quite a while until finally his warped intentions and motivations exploded in a final fit of blood and gore. It's because of that that I'd like to submit to all of us this morning that not just what we do is important, but why we do what we do is equally and possibly more important. You see, it's possible for all of us, like Leonard Holt, to go through our Christian lives and do all the good things that good Christians are supposed to do without ever really genuinely examining the motive or the reason behind why I do those things. It's possible for us to manifest all of the same outward signs of our religion. And as many people as there are in the gym today, there could be as many different reasons behind those same external behavior patterns. I'm reminded of the movie Chariots of Fire, the two leading characters, Abrams and Eric Little. These two men were basically paralleling each other in their external activity. They both competed in the same event. They wore basically the same equipment. They wanted to compete in the exact same Olympics. They wanted to run the same race that would be held on the same day for the exact same gold medal. On the outside, these two guys were almost identical, yet on the inside, two completely, distinctly different motivations for doing what they were doing. As you recall, Abrams had great concern that he even justify his existence. He had to prove to the world, I have a right to be here, and I choose to prove my right to be here by winning a gold medal. That was his motivation. That was what got him up in the morning and onto the track. Eric Little, on the other hand, answered that question long ago. He was on the earth to do one thing, glorify God. And he ran for that purpose. What's so fascinating about the two men is that they did the exact same thing on the outside, but on the inside had two totally distinctively different motivations. And this should cause us to ask ourselves a question. Why do I do the things I do in my life? What wakes me up in the morning? What gets me in the shower? What gets me going? What should be my motivation in the Christian life? Why should I spend time in prayer? Why should I have a Bible study? Why should I seek to obey the Lord? And I think that's a legitimate question. And as we begin to seek its answer, I'd suggest we turn to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. In this passage, Paul, the Apostle Paul bears his heart. It's the vulnerable moment in his life. All of us, I think, have had those at times where you really take the mask off and you open up and you say, you want to know who I am? You want to know why I do the things I do? I'll tell you. And then you say what you're going to say and you reveal the secret things, the inner things, the private things. Well, that's what Paul is doing in this passage. And let's read verses 7, 8, and then 10. 
Philippians chapter 3, verse 7. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in the view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ. Verse 10. That I may know Him and be and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Now, if you know anything about the Apostle Paul and anything about the people that we find in Scripture, you've got to be asking yourself a question. Of all the people who should say as their number one goal in life to be to know the person of Jesus Christ, I mean, that's what he says here, I do everything so that I might know Jesus Christ. Of all the people who could say that, why would Paul say that? I mean, doesn't Paul know Jesus Christ? Wasn't it Paul who had a personal revelation by the person of Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus where he got converted? Wasn't it Paul who was taken into the desert for three years where he received the revelations out of which he wrote most of the New Testament? And in those New Testament books revealed the mysteries, those things which were not known before, namely the church, the Jew and the Gentile in one body? I mean, who could possibly think they could know Jesus Christ better than the Apostle Paul? Why does he say this then, several years into his ministry? My consuming passion in life is to know Jesus Christ. Relax, you've arrived, Paul. You know him. I think what Paul's trying to say here is that you can know Jesus Christ, and then you can know him some more, and then you can know him some more. There is no limit. Let me help you with that. Turn to John, Gospel of John, chapter 17. John chapter 17. And we're going to find in this verse, verse 3, a technical theological definition. We don't often get those. A lot of times for our theological definitions, we have to take what the Bible says in totality and it comes together in one big systematic statement. But what you've got in John 17, verse 3, is a definition of the terms or the words eternal life. Let's see what the Lord says. John 17, verse 3, And this is eternal life, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Now, if I'd asked you before I read that verse, what is eternal life? I venture to guess that most of us would have said, that means you live forever. Eternal life is a quantity of days. It's how long I live, and that's true. And we can support that, biblically. But this verse helps us understand that eternal life is more than a quantity of days, it's a quality of days, defined by a personal relationship with God and Jesus Christ. Therefore, eternal life is not just how long I live, it's how well I live in a personal relationship with the Lord. Don't turn there, but you realize that Romans 8.29 says that he foreknew you. And the word to foreknew or he foreknew you doesn't mean that he looked down the corridors of time and realized that you would come to accept him as your Savior. That's not what the word means. When it says that God foreknew us, it means that he was in a personal love relationship with us before we were. You couple that with Ephesians chapter 1 where it says that before the foundations of the world, God chose us, God knew us, God selected us, God knew us by name. We've got to understand that our salvation, that our Christianity is far more than fire insurance 
I'm no longer going to hell. It's far more than a bunch of rules and regulations that dictate what I'm supposed to do and what I'm not supposed to do. May I suggest to you that the heart essence of salvation is being in the knowledge and in a personal relationship with God. And it was that way before you were created and even, in fact, before He founded the world. It says He knew you, He chose you, He knew you by name. It is that way here on earth, as we see in Paul's example, that I might know Jesus and it is forever. That is the heartbeat. But you know, we get so lost in our Christianity. We get so involved in the Bible study that we forget the one we're studying. So lost in the song that we forget who we're singing about. So lost in the service that we forget who we're serving. So busy in the activity and the externals of the Christian life that we've lost the essence of eternal life. Listen to what A.W. Tozer says in his book, The Pursuit of God. The modern scientist has lost God amid the wonders of his world. Isn't that true? We're so into evolution. We're so into discovering through scientific analysis that in the process we've completely lost the God who created it all. He says, the modern scientist has lost God amid the wonders of his world. We Christians are in real danger of losing God amid the wonders of his word. We've almost forgotten that God is a person and as such can be cultivated as any person can. It is inherent in personality to be able to know other personalities. But full knowledge of one personality by another personality cannot be achieved in one encounter. It's only after long and loving mental intercourse that, full, that the full possibilities of both can be explored. That's obvious, right? You meet a person for the very first time. You, he has a personality, hopefully. You have a personality. You begin to discover things that you like about each other in that first meeting. And if you were never to see each other again, could we say that you have a genuine, significant relationship? Of course not. Much has to be done to develop that into a lifelong friendship. Much work. The first encounter is the beginning. Why is it that in Christianity we meet Jesus at salvation and check out? And we run our own little Christian lives the way we want to run them. He goes on to say this. Religion, so far as it is genuine, is in essence the response of created personalities to the creating personality of God. God is a person. And in the deep of his mighty nature, he thinks, wills, enjoys, feels, loves, desires, as any other person may. In making himself known to us, he stays by the familiar pattern of personality. He communicates with us through the avenues of our minds, our wills, and our emotions. The, now, catch this. The continuous and unembarrassed interchange of love and thought between God and the soul of the redeemed man is the throbbing heartbeat of New Testament religion. Let me say that one more time. The continuous and unembarrassed interchange of love and thought between God and the soul of the redeemed man is the throbbing heartbeat of New Testament religion. Is this the throbbing heartbeat of your religion? If I were to ask you about your Christianity would you come up to me and say, I am so excited to be a Christian. 
because I am in a loving, continuous, mental intercourse with the person of God. This is why in Psalm 73, 25 and 26, don't write this down. I mean, maybe, maybe write it down. You don't need to look it up. The psalmist writes in Psalm 73, 25, 26, Whom have I in heaven but thee? God is, my, is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. What excites the psalmist about heaven is not the streets of gold and the pearly gates and the prospect of wearing wings and flying around playing some harp. What excites the psalmist about heaven is none other than God. God, you are what excites me about heaven. You are why I want to go. You are what I will do when I get there. People ask me, will I know so-and-so when I get there? Will I see so-and-so when I get there? Will I be worried about the people who got left behind when I got there? I don't know if the Bible answers all those questions. I know one thing, that the people who wrote the Bible say one thing about heaven, primarily. I'm excited about going to heaven because God is going to be there. And I will be in His immediate presence. I think all the other questions pale to insignificance in light of that greater reality. But may I ask the question, if before the foundation of the world it was God's design to enter into a personal relationship with us, and then after He created the world and we were born, He entered into that personal relationship with us, and then after we die and go to heaven, the essence of heaven is being in that personal relationship with God, how can we miss the boat so often? Why do I find myself so frequently losing contact with the essence of New Testament religion? Why am I so lost in the externals, the do's, the don'ts, I better, I shouldn't? Why aren't I thrilled constantly with being in that relationship? So my purpose this morning is to cause us to evaluate our motivation in the Christian life. I want you to evaluate your motivation in the Christian life. To help us ask and answer the question, why do I do the things I do? You see, there's a problem we all face. It's a problem which has plagued Christians ever since Christianity began. And it's this in a phrase. If you want to write something down, write this down. Here's the problem. Religion always degenerates to the externals. Religion always degenerates to the externals. What do I mean by that? If you've ever had the privilege of leading a person to the Lord, I mean, brand new baby Christian, fresh out of the world, and you're amazed at yourself, you're amazed at God, you're amazed that this person's repented over his sin, and you're just thrilled with the whole situation. And this new little baby Christian looks up to you, and he says, um, okay, now I'm saved, what do I do? And you say to him, well, I'll tell you what you do. You need to um, get some time in the Word. Right? Isn't that what we always tell new Christians? Get some time in the Word. And, and this poor new Christian, see, he doesn't know any better, right? So he goes and he gets time in the Word. Right? He's too new to complain about these things. So he goes in his room, shuts the door, and for a week he studies the Word of God. Regular quiet times. He comes back to you at the end of that week and he says, I cannot begin to tell you what is happening in my life. I have joy. I have peace. I have circumstantial blessings. My life is just opening up. I can't believe it. This is wonderful. Give me something else to do. Oh, okay. You need to pray. So we teach them how to pray and we send them off for a week and they go pray. Again, too new of a Christian to give you any hassle. He just goes and does it. 
comes back at the end of that week and says, my goodness, this is wonderful. I've got peace. I've got joy. I've got blessing like I've never had before. Phenomenal. What do I do next? You say, surrender your life completely to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. X out anything you can find that would be unpleasing to him. New Christian goes and does it. Makes a good stab at it. Comes back a week later, same thing. Joy, peace, and blessing. He doesn't even know what's happening to him. Now, what's this new Christian doing? All too often, the new Christian is trying to establish a cause and effect relationship between spending time in the Word of God, spending time in prayer, and seeking for obedience, cause, effect, joy, peace, and blessing. You see, he tries that out over and over and over again. He says, I'm not, I'm not getting the joy and the peace and the blessing I should have. Let me think, what did my disciple tell me to do? Oh yeah, spend time in the Word, pray and obey. So he does this and he gets this. He does this and he gets this. If he doesn't have enough of this, he goes and he does this. A simply a cause and effect relationship. May I suggest to you that that is not a true relationship in Christianity? That is not the way, that is not the principle, that is not the way that God has structured reality? What is the principle? Spend time in the Word of God. Spend time in prayer. Seek to be obedient in order that you might know God. And the result of knowing God is joy, peace, and blessing. Degenerate Religion wants to degenerate to the externals. What I want to do is I want to cut God out of my religious system. I want to have my own control over my own system. And if I can set up my own little cause and effect relationship down here, and when I don't have enough joy and peace, I just simply do my little, my crank out my little Bible study, crank out my little prayer and clean up my act a little bit, and presto, insto, without God's grace, without God's being involved, I get what I want. That's religion degenerating to the externals. There's a classic example of this in the Old Testament. Turn to 1 Samuel chapter 4 with me, will you? Now, when we come to this narrative, we need to understand that it's, that it's after the end of the judges period. The judges have come and gone, Samson being the last judge. And he actually failed in his commission to rid the people of the Philistines. And so the Philistine oppression was still in force. And the people were living in disobedience. But the hub of that disobedience was centered in the temple. Eli, at that time, was the high priest. And, of course, the temple was the very heartbeat of that religion. It was the very center. It was the hub of all their religion. And Eli was presiding over the temple as the high priest. He was a fat, obese man who'd raised two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And Hophni and Phinehas were doing the workings of the temple at that time. They were running the temple. They were doing the offerings and the sacrifices. And as they would do that, they would take too much of the offering, as they were instructed in Leviticus, and they would take the wrong parts of the offering, and those both were an abomination and a desecration of the temple. Beyond that, they were committing fornication with some gals there in the temple. And so the very heart and the very center of Israel's relationship with God was in a total mess. The Philistines had been oppressing them for some 20 years, and we pick up the narrative here in 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 1. Thus the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to meet the Philistines in battle and camped beside Ebenezer while the Philistines camped at Aphek. So they're kind of getting in, in position, right, for battle. And the Philistines drew up in battle array to meet Israel 
When the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the battlefield. Now look up from your Bibles for a second. What you've got is Israel, under the oppression of the Philistines, and they say, we're sick of this oppression. We're sick of being um, pushed and shoved by the Philistines. We're going to handle this problem. So they get their battle array on, and they go fight the Philistines, and 4,000 people die that day on their side. Look at verse 3. When the people came into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? That's the right question. At least they got the question right. The Philistines hadn't defeated them. The Lord had defeated them. Right question. Wrong answer. Look at the second part of that verse, verse 3. So here comes what they figured to be the answer. Let us take to ourselves from Shiloh the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, that it, catch that word, it, that it may come among us and deliver us from the power of our enemies. So they get the Ark. They pull the Ark and they say, the Ark, this is what we need. Now you know what I mean by the Ark of the Covenant, right? So they get their ark and they bring it in. And it says in verse 5 that when they brought it in, there, the shout went out and the, the ground even shook. They were so excited and the Philistines heard it. And in verse 9, the Philistines do this. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been slaves to you. Therefore, be men and fight. Well, what happens? So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and every man fled to his tent, and the slaughter was very great, for there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. Foot soldiers. And you've got to say to yourself, hold it. We had the Ark. You remember the Ark? The Ark of the Covenant? You recall the River Jordan when um, Joshua had all of his two million people, and God said, cross the River Jordan? And Joshua looked at the river and said, it's in flood stage, Lord. And in flood stage, the river was possibly a mile across, a raging, rushing river. He had no helicopters, no bridges, crossed the what? And the Lord said, take the ark. And the ark went down, the, priest, the feet of the priest stepped by the water, and the river stopped. This was the ark. What happened to the ark? It was the same ark that went around the city of Jericho. And eventually the what? The walls just fell right down. And then we went and got the ark this time to fight the Philistines. We lost all these men. Lord, what happened here? Prime example of religion degenerating to the externals. The ark was never the issue. It was the God whose presence was represented by the ark. He was the power that stopped the river. God was the power that made the walls fall down. And God could have been the power to wipe out the Philistines. How many times in our Christian lives when things don't go right, when we don't have the peace and the joy that we think we ought to have, do we run go get our ark, our Bible study, our prayer time? We crank out our obedience and never stop to resolve the real issue. Where am I with God? What should they have done? Well, I think the answer is in verse 11. And the ark of God was taken. Not only did they lose all the men but the Philistines captured the ark. So get rid of the ark. And the two sons of Eli, and Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were killed in the battle. That cleans up the wrong kind of worship in the temple. And then look in verse 18. And it came about when he mentioned the ark of God that Eli fell off his seat backwards beside the gate and his neck was broken and he died for he was old and heavy. What did God do? 
God solved the problem. He said, if, if the ark is going to be an object of external religion, I'll just take it away from you. And then I'll go do what you should have done in the first place, which was what? Go to the temple and clean up the temple. Get your relationship with God right. So he kills Hophni and Phinehas, and he wipes Eli out. What should we do when oppressed by sin? Crank out some externals or go straight to God and deal with him? So we remind ourselves this morning that, number one, God has a personality. And he chooses to reveal himself through that familiar pattern of personality. Secondly, we understand that salvation is more than fire insurance. It's more than not going to hell. From its inception, salvation is a relationship with God. And I'd like to just touch on two things, two common things that tend to keep the Christian from genuinely pursuing or seeking God. The first, now these are two what I call less than best motivations. They're not wrong in and of themselves, but as these two motivations begin to characterize our life, I think they're less than best. The first is this, rather than seeking the Lord, we seek to pacify Him. We seek to pacify Him. It's as if we have to do so much time in the Word and so much time in prayer and so much obedience so that we fill a little quota. You ever feel that way? There's a little quota in your life. You better fill it or you're in trouble. It's as if there's some imaginary line in your life. And if this is the world and if this is the things of God, and we all have that imaginary line, and you cross that line and God's going to discipline you because He's faithful to do that. Hebrews 12 tells us that. We want our life not seeking Him, but seeking to avoid His chastening hand in our life. I do the things I do, and I don't do the things I don't do, not because I love Jesus, but because if I do or don't do those things, He's going to spank me. You ever been spanked by God? I've been spanked by God. I remember a very disobedient time in my life. Um, I was in some real trouble, and I was playing uh, sports in high school. And... Uh, Having a tremendous time, tremendous season. I was um, the varsity quarterback as a sophomore uh, through God's grace. And then I went on to be on the basketball team, and I was made all-league basketball player. And I got in some trouble um, that God wasn't too pleased with. And before I knew it, I found myself in a hospital bed having both of my feet operated on at the same time. And what they had to do was they had to cut some muscles in the bottom of my feet and then put me in casts for three months. Guess who had to go back to school? looking like Frankenstein. You ever try to walk with two casts on your feet? You look real funny. God humbled me. God spanked me at that point. And I told him, I'm sorry. I won't do it again. I promise. I'm done. I'm finished. I'm yours. You do you know, whatever you need. You just do it. I'm available. I made that promise. Got out of the cast three months later. Had a tremendous recovery. I was up at Bass Lake water skiing for a week. Got in some trouble up there. Came home the very next day. I was on a 360 Yamaha with no helmet, no shirt, boots, and a pair of jeans. It wasn't my bike. I was going 55 miles an hour on the street. The back fender was loose. I didn't know that. I went over a bump. The back fender caught the knobbies on the tire. It sucked it back in. The back wheel bounced twice and dumped on my right foot. Broke every bone in my right foot. Three months in a cast, said I was sorry. Out for a week, proved I wasn't sorry back in a cast three more months. 
You ever been spanked by God? It hurts. God gives that to us to get our attention. But God does not give that to us to be our sole and single motivation in the Christian life. What He wants out of us is that we should seek Him. It's like the little boy who comes across his dad. His dad says, sit down, little boy. Son, little boy says, uh-uh. Dad says, Johnny, sit down. Uh-uh. Now, Johnny, you either sit down or I'm going to spank you. What does Johnny do? Sits down. Then he looks up at his dad. He says, Dad, I'm sitting down on the outside, but on the inside, I'm standing up. Right? Look back at Philippians 3 for just a second. Philippians chapter 3. And I've rewritten the passage for Paul. We're going to read that same passage, verses 7 and 8. Before you call me a heretic and burn me at the stake, which you should do for rewriting a passage of Scripture, let me say it's only to highlight what Paul has written. Now, you follow along closely. I'm going to read what I have rewritten. And as you look in your Bible, you'll see how I've changed it to reflect this kind of a mentality. This kind of a mentality that only seeks to avoid the disciplining hand of God. Verse 7, but whatever things were gained to me, these things or those things I have counted as loss for the sake of avoiding the disciplining hand of Christ. Verse 8, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of fulfilling my quota of do's and don'ts in the Christian life for which I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that I may pacify Christ. That's a prostituted, adulterated motivation, isn't it? when we have the higher prospect of doing what we do so that we might know Christ. Write this down. Psalm 32.9 says this. Do not be as the horse or as the mule which has no understanding, whose trappings include bit and bridle to hold them in check. Otherwise, they will not come near. You see, Christian, when we reduce our motivation in the Christian life to avoiding God's disciplining hand, we become as the mule who has no understanding, whose trappings include bit and bridle, else we won't even come near him. Are you only close to God because he continually spanks you into his presence? I'm reminded of Joseph, who was confronted by Potiphar's wife day after day after day as she enticed him to commit adultery with her. Until finally, in the heat of passion, she grabs onto his garment and says, we're going to do it right now. Do you know what his response to her was? He says, how can I do this great thing and sin against my God? The issue was not, if I do this, I'll lose my job. If I do this, I might get thrown in prison because he got that anyway. The reason he chose not to sin in his life was because he was in a personal relationship with God. And that meant more to him than a few minutes in bed with a woman. That is motivation in the Christian life. So the first thing that tends to derail us is when we do the things we do because we don't want to get spanked. The second thing, rather than pursuing the Lord, we seek the Lord's gifts. We seek the Lord's gifts. We're no longer treading some imaginary line. We're going in the right direction. We're, we're seeking after God. We're just doing it for the wrong reason. It, our relationship with God begins to develop a commercial spirit. 
a business transaction. God, if I do this for you, you give me this in return. It's a fair deal. I'm going to God to give myself to God because of what I can get out of it. We come to the point where we only go to God to get something from Him. Of course, this is not bad in and of itself. God desires to bless His saints. God says that over and over. He wants to bless His people. But I'm not sure that's why He wants His people pursuing Him. Oswald Chambers writes this in a book, My Utmost for His Highest. Salvation is not merely deliverance from sin, nor the experience of personal holiness. The salvation of God is deliverance out of self entirely into union with Himself. My experiential knowledge of salvation will be along the line of deliverance from sin. But salvation means, now catch this, that the Spirit of God has brought me into touch with God's personality. And I am thrilled with something infinitely greater than myself. I am caught up into abandonment with God. Doesn't that just seem right to you? That when the Spirit of God brings you into touch with the living God, you cease thinking about yourself because you're so consumed with Him? We say this to God, No, Lord, I don't want you. I want myself. But I want myself clean and filled with the Holy Ghost. I want to be put in your showroom and be able to say, This is what God has done for me. It's like a dating relationship. You know what I'm talking about here. You've had your eye on this guy for months. He's everything you've ever wanted. And suddenly that magic moment happens and you're in class and he looks at you. Oh. You didn't hear another thing the prof said the rest of the day, right? He, later he calls you. Much later. He, he asks you out on a date. You fall in love. You begin to spend all of your time together. You do absolutely everything together. You talk about marriage. You talk about kids. You talk about everything. Your life is inseparably entwined from this day forth. And along with all of those good things comes a bad thing. And somewhere in there, the sexual problem began to get out of control. And the gal or the guy, either way, finally wakes up and says, I, I can't continue in this any longer gets accountable to somebody and says to the, the partner, no more of this. We can continue to have our relationship, but no more physical involvement. It's sin. And the other person says, oh, I agree with that 100%. We need to work on that. Let's stop that. All too often, within two or three weeks, the other person is gone. Because the only thing that was moving the relationship along in the first place was what I got out of it. The physical, sexual pleasure. And that may not even have been realized by either party. In other words, as soon as I stop getting what I want out of this relationship, count me out. I'm gone. Look at Philippians 3 again. Let's rewrite the passage from this perspective. Verse 7. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of the blessings I can get out of Christ. Verse 8, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of being a mature Christian and count them but rubbish in order that I may be the best, the greatest Christian that I can possibly be. Less than best, right? 
God wants us to seek him for the sake of seeking him, not for what we might get out of it. Now, I'd like to talk to you about the gifts that God gives. God has a higher utility for the gifts that he gives us than what we personally get out of them. Ever been around the Christmas tree? Last Christmas, we had a tremendous Christmas. Um, I ran into some extra money that my wife didn't know about just prior to Christmas. And I'm thinking, you know, I really want to do something special for Heidi. So I think and I think and I think, and not too long prior to that, we had had a burglary in our, in, our, in our condominium, and the guy had come in and taken the only thing of real value in the whole place, monetary value. He'd taken a beautiful gold coin that, on a necklace that Heidi had been given from her aunt in Switzerland. Beautiful thing. And so she didn't have a necklace anymore. So I thought, ah, oh, yeah, I'll get her a necklace. Of course, now I can't afford one of these hotshot deals, right? I can't go out and buy some gold coin from Switzerland that's so many years old. But I get my money together and I go down to the thing and I'm walking around and I find this beautiful, I think it's beautiful, this beautiful brace, uh, this beautiful necklace. And it's got two, it's got two little gold hearts. That, they're not full hearts, they're just outlines of a heart. Two little hearts that are kind of one in front of the other. The one in front's a little smaller. So you get the picture, kind of like that. And then up the side, there's these little rubies kind of like ruby chips, but, you know, rubies, right? These little rubies up the side, and then dead center in the middle of it, there's a diamond. I'm going, that's it, how much? And amazingly enough, I'm at this wholesale, wholesale, wholesale discount place. I have enough money. Now, I buy this thing, and I wrap it up, and I put it in her stocking. I get other gifts for her that she thinks are for her Christmas time, and she gets done with that, and she goes, oh, that's a wonderful Christmas. And then we always open stockings in our house after that, and all the kids get their stockings, and there's an extra stocking, and it's surprisingly for Heidi. And in it, I stick all these little perfumes and soaps and all this stuff, and they're all done in the same package. At the very bottom of the package is the necklace. And she, you know, gets, oh, this is wonderful, and what are you doing, and why are you giving me all this soap? And finally she gets to the bottom one, and she opens it, and what does she see? What does she see? If she sees a necklace that costs X amount of dollars, and that's the highest value she gets out of it, she has missed the gift. So I took a little time to write a card out so that she could understand how I feel or what I meant by giving the gift. In other words, what I want you to understand about me because what I have given you. And I write this soupy, sloppy letter. You know, the two hearts, and this is really true, right? This is how I feel about it. But the two hearts are your heart and my heart inseparably joined, right? And the rubies on the side, the red rubies reflect the passion of our love. And the diamond in the middle reflects the purity of our love. Now, if she can get the message behind that, if she sees more in the gift than that I paid X amount of dollars for it, if she can begin to see into the giver and understand the things of the giver that he wants to communicate. In other words, I gave the gift for her more than for her to have something to wear when she dresses up. The gift was to communicate. When God meets your need, when you have no peace and God gives you peace, He has a higher purpose than to give you peace. He wants you to understand something about His love, something about His omniscience. He knew you needed it. Something about His omnipotence. He had the power to create it. He loves you intimately and dearly. 
Don't take the gifts of God and let them find their fullest expression on you. Face God and say thank you and determine what He wants you to know about Him because of it. Motivation in the Christian life. Why do we do the things we do? May I suggest that it should be one ultimately because we love Him and we are in a personal relationship with Him. Don't allow your Christianity, as mine so often does, to degenerate to the externals. Fight that off. And when you find in your life that you're doing the things you're doing only because you don't want to get caught or disgraced or disciplined by God, respond to that but get out of that mode and begin to seek Him from a pure heart because you want to know Him. And when you find that in your Christian life you're doing the things you're doing so that He can give you more things and you can get more out of Him and there's a commercial spirit in your Christianity, deal with that. Thank Him for the gifts. Understand why and what He's given you. But seek Him because He is who He is and because that's why He redeemed you. What am I suggesting? I don't have a new Bible study technique for you. I don't have a new prayer technique for you. I don't have a new obedience technique for you. I'm just asking you to concern yourself with the why of it all. Do it for the right reasons. Let me close with an illustration that might help from God's perspective. We've talked about it from our perspective. How does God feel about it when we are down here doing what we do for the wrong reason? And imagine with me, if you will, for a minute that there's a guy a newlywed, a couple, famously in love with each other. The Cinderella story. And they get married and they go on their honeymoon and they just kind of return from their honeymoon and the guy goes off to the work and the gal goes to the store and on the way to the store, the, car, the gal is involved in a car accident. And the guy has no, the husband has no conception of this. I mean, he doesn't understand. He doesn't know about this yet. And she gets there and it's serious, serious brain damage which results in an inability to communicate, an inability to move her hands, an inability to move her body. And the doctor's shocked. He does everything he can. He calls the husband. The husband comes. He sits down. And he says, I have very distressing news for you. The bride that you just married, because of this car accident, is physically and mentally impaired. Now, if the husband is a husband, he doesn't begin to think of all the things that he no longer gets. Right?